0: Now we are looking at Psalm 23, verse 6, particularly the first half of verse 6. And we're going to read that now if you would like to stand with me of honor and respect for God's Word. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the words of our God. Psalmist David writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. overflows surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and i shall dwell in the house of the lord forever this is the word of the lord thanks be to god let's pray together the father would you you anoint the reading and preaching of your word now with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need him to understand your word and to comprehend your word and to grasp the promises and truths of your word and to obey the commands of your word. And so we ask for help from the Holy Spirit now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. The SS Austria sank on September 13, 1858. Steamship's demise is considered to be one of the worst maritime disasters of the 19th century. Few survived the ordeal. Uh, 449 of the passengers and crew were laid to rest in their watery graves. In the Atlantic Ocean. Of the few who did survive. Um, the ordeal. One returned to the United States and he, he went to a prayer meeting in Philadelphia and Samuel Prime in his book, The Power of Prayer, shares a story. He went to a prayer meeting in Philadelphia and he shared the story of, of the deaths of five young men aboard the Austria. Apparently, this young man and his five comrades were aboard the ship together. They were drawn to one another because of their, their common mutual faith as, as Christians. And they were together when they realized that the demise of the Austria was deemed inevitable. And so together they, they made their way to the edge of the ship. The flames were behind them, the icy waters of the Atlantic in front of them. And so they took a few moments to pray to contemplate their end. But then they did something so peculiar. They grasped each other's hands and they expressed to one another their full confidence that in just a few moments, they were going to be meeting together in heaven. From there, they leapt into the ocean and their souls into paradise. And as I read that, I thought, what what a thing. Just just moments before death, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the shadow's about to utterly overtake you, and you face it with such confidence, with such certainty, with such assurance that that, that the goodness and mercy of God would follow you and that you would dwell in in his house, with him forever. With such certainty, with such confidence, they faced their deaths. Well, I'd like for us to consider this morning whether or not we possess this kind of assurance in our souls. And now the, the experience of what's, what's often called Christian assurance, it's not simply the same thing as, as trusting in Christ for one's salvation. Rather, the, the experience of, of Christian assurance is, is is the thrilling comfort of having a measure of certainty regarding that salvation which you've trusted in Christ for. It's, you know, if, if you think about it, faith, the genuine faith would be the root and assurance would be the flower of genuine faith. It's the experience of knowing in your, in your heart of hearts that God is your God and you are his child. It's the experience of, of having not only genuine faith in Christ, but a confident and certain faith, a faith without any admixture of doubt. And that's what those six men aboard the, the Austria experienced. And that's what David, we see in our text here, experienced as well. He begins verse six with this fascinating little word. He says, surely, surely, It could also be translated as as most assuredly, or absolutely, or certainly, or beyond any doubt. And, And the source of David's assurance is not his own strength, or his own morality, or his own wisdom, or his own goodness, or his own faithfulness. No, in fact, David's source of assurance is actually something outside of him. The source of David's assurance is God's goodness and mercy. And that's our subject this morning, God's goodness and mercy. And so we're going to begin with, with looking at one kind of major point concerning God's goodness and mercy, and then two shorter kind of minor points that tell us something important about the aspects of the nature of God's goodness and mercy. First, the, the more major point we're going to look at is the personification of goodness and mercy. And then we'll look at two minor points. Number one, the, or number two, the, the pursuit of goodness and mercy. And number three, the persistence of goodness and mercy. And as we explore the the personification, the pursuit, the persistence of God's goodness and mercy, we're gonna see this kind of big idea develop that, that we can be confident that God will pursue us and never let us go. We can be confident, we can be assured that God will pursue us and never let us go. Let's dig in. First, we see the personification of goodness and mercy. David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And, and, and we're going to narrow in on, the, on those two particular words, goodness and mercy. And, and here you, you may notice that David kind of breaks from the metaphor. Okay, so he's been showing us how the relationship of the Lord to his people is like that of a gracious host to his honored guest. But, but this particular line here, David kind of breaks from the metaphor and he starts using more traditional theological language. He speaks about two attributes of God, namely God's goodness and God's mercy. And yet, he does so in an interesting way, doesn't he? He speaks about God's goodness and mercy in a, as if they're persons. He speaks about them in a personified way. These attributes are pictured as persons that are doing certain actions, namely following David and chasing after him, which we're gonna touch on in just a few moments. But, but first, let, let, let's explore what he means here when he talks about God's goodness and mercy. First, David speaks about the Lord's goodness to his people. And, and to talk about the Lord's goodness is to talk about his commitment to lavish blessings and benefits on his people, okay? And, and of course, when we hear that as, as materialistic Westerners, the temptation for us is to think of that on the plane of, of materialistic blessings and benefits. Uh, and, and in some respect, it, it very well might speak to the Lord's grace in giving us our, our necessary provisions, and even above and beyond our necessary provisions when he sees fit. We've seen that already in Psalm 23. But we would do well to recognize here that, that his goodness speaks to more than material and temporal blessings. The Lord is not merely committed to giving us material blessings. Even more, he's committed to giving us spiritual blessings, He's, he's, he not only wants us to know the pleasure of having bread in our stomachs and water in our mouths and uh, beds in which to rest our head at night, he wants us to know the pleasure of, of being filled and quenched and at rest in his presence. He he wants us to know the pleasure of being like Christ and being full and whole in Christ. He wants us to know the pleasure of assurance. He wants us to know the pleasure of being and feeling like and knowing that we are his children. He wants us to experience those kinds of blessings. And sometimes that might mean that we go through times of suffering and hardship in order to experience those spiritual blessings more fully. Sometimes we, we need to meet with hardship regarding material or temporal blessings so that we might better know the pleasure of spiritual blessings. Remember, David speaks of in Psalm 23 here of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And remember, he says that it's in the, the valley of the shadow of death that he senses the Lord's presence. He says, you are with me there. Or it's in the presence of his enemies in which David is dining and feasting at the Lord's table. Remember, it's 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 sometimes while the Lord delights in meeting our material and temporal needs, that, that doesn't mean that we won't face hardship and suffering in this life. And yet notice here that that David's hardship and suffering doesn't cause him to question the Lord's goodness, does it? He 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 very well might say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 that the Lord works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And along with Paul in the very same breath, in the same chapter, David could very well speak of the Lord's goodness while experiencing hardship and persecution and suffering and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and all the rest of it. Sometimes it's in those very things that while unpleasant in the moment, we might see a better picture of the Lord's goodness. One pastor, he spoke of it this way. He said that that the many things we experience in life are, are like the many ingredients of a cake. And we all love cake. Everybody likes cake. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Well, some of those ingredients in and of themselves don't taste very good. Flour doesn't taste good on its own. Vanilla extract doesn't taste good on its own. Baking powder doesn't taste good on its own. They're hard to stomach but the end result is cake. It's amazing. Everybody likes cake. It's, it's amazing. Similarly, many, the many experiences we, we have in life are, are sometimes bitter and hard to take, but if we could see the end result in the bigger picture, we would see the Lord's intention to bring us much good and that his goodness prevails in the end and that ultimately all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But then David Speaks not only of the Lord's goodness, but the Lord's mercy. And now, this part's a little more difficult because the word translated as as mercy here is a word that that there's not really a direct equivalent for in English. Sometimes it's translated as mercy. Sometimes it's translated as as steadfast love. The word is hesed. And it speaks of, of the kind of love that is based on a pledge, the kind of mercy, the kind of kindness, the kind of grace that is based on a vow. It's a covenant kind of love. Uh, R.C. Sproul wanted to actually translate it as loyal love. It's, it's not a fair weather kind of love. It's, it's, it's a kind of love that stays no matter what. It's a fierce love. It's, it's, it's a sworn love. It's a love that saves and forgives and redeems and acquits. It's the kind of love that God has for his very own people. He has pledged and sworn his love and mercy to us as his people. And I want you to consider what that means. That means that God has tied up the very glory and honor of his name with our good and our salvation as his people. So much so that if God were to fail to forgive us as his people, if he were to fail to bless his people and ultimately save his people, he would be a liar and his glory would be diminished. God has bound up his glory in our good. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of an elderly dying woman in Scotland while on her deathbed. Her pastor came to visit her and and upon his arrival, she told him, I'm utterly confident that I am forgiven, I am redeemed, and I am about to meet my Savior. And pastor then asked her, he said, suppose the Lord doesn't keep his promise and you are lost. She responded by saying, his would be a greater loss than I. Perplexed by her answer, the pastor said, why? And she replied to him, it is true that I would lose my soul, but God would lose his honor and glory if that were true. You see, the Lord has gone on public record in his own word that all those who trust in him will be forgiven and saved from eternal damnation and into eternal life with him forever. And he has bound up the very honor and glory of his name and the salvation of his people. That is why David and that elderly woman, those six young men aboard the Austria were so confident in their salvation because God has promised and pledged his goodness and loyal love to his people. And if he were to fail to show it to us, he would be an unrighteous liar, something we know is not true of him in the slightest. My friends, these these are realities that you can bank your life on. You can bet the blue chips on this. You can be confident that there's no trial greater than God's goodness and there's no sin greater than his loyal love. You can be confident in this. He has sworn his loyal love to you. He's promised to do you good. Like guardian angels, his goodness and loyal love will follow you and accompany you all the days of your life. Even in the fiery trials, even in pain and pandemics, even in the midst of disease and death, even in the midst of disaster and upheaval, if you belong to Jesus Christ, it's a sure thing. It's a done deal. Goodness and mercy will follow you. Which brings us next to the, the pursuit of goodness and mercy. Next, we see how, how God's goodness and mercy follows us. David says, goodness and mercy shall follow me. And of course, we might be somewhat perplexed by that language, you know, normally in our in our. Uh, relationship with the Lord. We're usually seen in the ones who follow, as the, one as the ones who follow, and that speaks of the Lord's kind of his leadership of us and the things of life. But, but here, David speaks of the Lord following us. And what's more is, is that following is probably too mild a word. Elsewhere, the, the, when this Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament, it speaks of a, a kind of violent chasing. Normally, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it speaks to a kind of violent chasing. Like in Genesis 14, or Judges 20, 43, uh, it, it's used to speak of an army chasing another one in battle. Now, this kind of picture we might have of this word would be like a, a hunter stalking its prey. Only here, the, the violent pursuit of, a, of, of the Lord is not like a hunter stalking its prey or an army chasing another in battle. This violent pursuit is for the good of one pursued, Like a shepherd chasing after a lamb to save it. From the jaws of a, a predator perhaps like liam neeson in that movie taken you know the lord's goodness and mercy as a particular set of skills you know yeah it's god's goodness and mercy and follow us and, and of course david's use of the word here assumes that we are so prone to want away to run away from the lord like sheep we we wander from his fold and yet, the shepherd seeks us out and rescues us from destruction. This was a, this was a lesson David knew well. It's one he had learned the hard way. And 1 Samuel 12 tells the story of how David had, had run away from the Lord, but how the Lord graciously chased him down in his severe kindness. It was during the, the time of the year when, when kings would normally go out to battle with their, their armies, But for some reason, David stayed behind, and while his men were off bravely fighting for the sake of Israel, David was living a life of leisure and comfort in his palace. And one evening, he goes to take a walk on the roof, and he saw Bathsheba across the way, bathing on her roof. And his glance turned into a stare, and his stare turned into action. David inquired about who she was, and found she was the wife of one of David's soldiers, one of the ones who were off fighting for him, Uriah. And he sent for her. And you know the story. David sexually violated this woman, this image bearer. He leveraged his power to take advantage of her, and in so doing, he sinned against her, and he sinned against Uriah, and most importantly, he sinned against our holy God. Long story short, she became pregnant and... And in order to hide what he had done, David had Uriah killed and he took Bathsheba as his wife. And he went on to live like nothing had ever happened. Only God in his goodness and mercy, he would not allow that to happen. And so the Lord chased after David, he sent the prophet Nathan to expose and confront David and his sin, and he called David to repentance and the Lord rescued David from the clinches of the jaws of his sin. And so again, here, don't you see? David's confidence and assurance, what's it? It's not in himself. It's not in his own goodness or his own morality. David knew, like we all should know, that if our own worthiness is the cause of God's kindness to us, we're hopeless. Instead, his confidence is in God's goodness and mercy and in the promise that his goodness and mercy will chase him down and pursue him all the days of his life. Which brings us lastly to the persistence of goodness and mercy not only is David confident that the Lord's goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life, he says. He will, he will follow me. He's confident that it's persistent. And so he speaks also of the Lord's persistence here. Most certainly, David's affections and allegiance will, to God will fluctuate. Most certainly, he will, he will fail and falter in his sin. Most certainly, his strength will subside, but most certainly, he says, God's loyal love will always remain steadfast. No matter what the state of David's love in return, David will weaken and waver, but God never will. David will run away again and again, but God will always chase after him. He will never give up on him. He will never let him go. He will never let him fully or finally fall. And this is a promise that we can all cling to in Christ. We may sin and fall through neglect and temptation. We may in our sin grieve the Holy Spirit or bring reproach on ourselves. But because of God's persistence and unwavering faithfulness to us, if we are truly in Christ, we will always be renewed again to repentance and be preserved by God's grace. We may run away from God again and again in this life, but God will always chase after us and he will always catch us. Last week, I read a little bit about persistence hunting. I remember having a conversation with a friend several years ago. We were talking about exercising and I told him that running was the worst. And he was telling me about this, these tribes that practice persistence hunting and how useful it is. And I live in the city and I don't need to do that, so I'm not going to. It was a fairly common practice back in the day, but uh, I, for, for what I know now, there's only, I think there are only two tribes that actually practice it today. Persistence hunting. It's, it's where the hunters will chase after a particular animal as their prey, and they'll run, 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 and they'll run for a very long time. I don't know why you wouldn't just get in your car and drive to Kroger. But interestingly, because we human beings, we have very little hair, we can sweat to keep us from overheating. That's something, a benefit that, these, that this prey does not often enjoy. They need to either slow down or stop so that they can pant, or they'll just collapse from exhaustion. And so the sort of strategy is to simply run more steadfastly with greater endurance, with greater persistence than the animal being chased. Persistence hunting, you, you chase an animal until it gives up or collapses. And that, David says, is what the Lord does with us as his people. Our, our endurance to continue to run from him when he has set, set his sights on us is nothing compared to the endurance with which he can run after us. His grace is always greater than our sin. His endurance is always greater than our endurance. If he has set his sight on you, Christian, you are safe and he's never going to give up on you. He will chase after you and he always gets his prey, David says. He's got infinite capacity and power and steadfastness. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. He always gets his prey. David was sure of it. He had experienced it himself. Young men aboard the Austria were sure of it. That elderly Scottish woman was sure of it. And you, my friend, can be sure of it this morning. And that's largely what I want you to walk away with this morning, that you can have Christian assurance. You you can possess a greater measure of assurance and certainty regarding your salvation. Your conscience can increasingly rest at ease in God's grace. Your soul can grow in knowing the thrilling comfort of Christian assurance. I'd like to close with just a few do's and don'ts regarding that journey to possessing assurance. First, I would say don't assume your salvation. We want assurance not assumption. There's a big difference. We we assume our salvation when we presume upon false pretenses. We assume our salvation when we think we are saved because we prayed a prayer once. We assume our salvation when we think we're saved because we're involved with church activities or, or because our families have a strong Christian heritage. We assume our salvation when we think we're saved because we have material blessing and financial security or because we've done good works. If we think we're saved because of these matters and others like them, we don't have assurance of salvation. We're assuming our salvation, which is a poor substitute for assurance and might eventually lead to eternal death and damnation. Don't assume your salvation. Second, don't participate in behavior that hinders assurance. You know, sometimes we, we act and we behave in, in, in ways that keep us from experiencing and enjoying Christian assurance. We do this when we refuse to deal with known sin. We deal with sins like lust or anger in our lives. We continue to refuse to deal with them day by day. We don't confess them. We don't forsake them. And so we continue to experience something less than what God has for us in Christ concerning assurance. Likewise, spiritual laziness is another behavior that hinders Christian assurance. Ask yourself, are are you spiritually lazy? Are you lazy and lax when it comes to reading the scriptures and, and praying daily and participating in the communal life of God's people? Are you spiritually lazy? Or, or not only that, but to put it more positive, positively, do you, do you habitually participate in activities that numb your soul to the possibility of Christian assurance? Namely, do you, do you overindulge in things like entertainment, social media, TV? Donald Whitney, he, he rightly calls these things as a sort of a, he calls them spiritual anesthesia. Especially on the heels of, of our time in, in quarantine, perhaps you're experiencing this at a rate that you've never experienced it before. You're just spiritually asleep, spiritually lazy, participating in activities that cause spiritual anesthesia. Perhaps a break from those kinds of things might be, present, or might be necessary in your life in the present so that you can devote yourself to the pursuit of assurance with greater vigilance and care. Don't assume your salvation and don't participate in behavior that hinders assurance. But lastly, do look to Jesus. Do look to the promises of God. Are you, are you? Make sure that you're daily meditating on the truths of God's word. Make sure that you are daily marinating in the promises of God. Make sure that you are daily praying for greater confidence and assurance in your soul. Remember where David's assurance is coming from. He's not looking at himself. Where is he looking? He's, he's looking at his God. Look at verse six, he's he's looking at God's goodness and mercy, he's looking at God's pursuit, he's looking at God's faithfulness and persistence and preservation. He's not looking at his own prayers or his own righteousness. He's he's not looking at his own steadfastness or his own strength, he's looking at his God and his God is the source of his assurance. His God is where he finds assurance. Beholding his God has led to David having such assurance and confidence. And if beholding his God has led to David having such confidence and assurance, how much more does it for us now? We have a a greater display of God's goodness and mercy on this side of the first advent of Jesus than David did on his. You, you, You see, because the Lord's pursuit of us caused him to leave his heavenly home with all of its perfections and pleasures, and he chased after us by becoming like us. He stepped into our skin, and he even took upon himself our sin, and he suffered, and he was tortured on a Roman cross in our place. He took what we deserved because of our sin, and he died in our place on his cross, and in so doing, The penalty for our sin was laid on him. So now we only need to trust in him and receive his free gift of forgiveness and redemption. But then that's not all. He also rose again three days later. The, the powers of death and hell could not hold him in his divine might. He overthrew the reign of Satan, sin, and death. And now is the victorious one. What he said in John 10, 28, he says over us right now as his people, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Indeed, all of God's promises of goodness and mercy find their full yes and amen in Christ Jesus. What's more is he sent the promised Holy Spirit to fill us as his people so that we would be sealed and secured by his holy presence so that no matter where we are or what we're doing, his presence, his goodness, his loyal love is close at hand following us all the days of our lives. Friends, we can be confident. We can have assurance that God will pursue us and never let us go. He's sworn to it. He tied the very glory and honor of his name to it. He wants you to be assured of it as his beloved people. And so in light of his promises, in light of his pursuit, in light of his persistence, I implore you, pursue the thrilling comfort of Christian assurance. Like those men aboard the Austria, that Scottish woman, it will make all the difference when your time comes to die. But even now, it will make all the difference for how you live now. It will embolden you to serve and seek justice in this world. It will cause you to lay your head down in peace at night and rest, knowing I am good with God will keep you from loving this world too much when earthly comforts abound. It will give you the strength to persevere through any trouble or any trial you may meet with now. So if you're not currently experiencing a thrilling comfort of Christian assurance, I'd like to invite you to get a hold of myself or or Pastor Dan, one of the pastors here at Veritas. We, We all struggle with doubts. We all struggle with a lack of assurance sometimes, some of us more than others. It's nothing to be embarrassed about or ashamed of, but it is something that you ought to seek to remedy. It is something that you ought to pursue. So if you know how to get a hold of Dan or JJ or myself, I'd invite you to do that. If you don't, again, invite you to fill out a Connect card talked about at the beginning, veritasdayton.org slash connect, or, or grab Dan or myself afterward. We're gonna, we're gonna kind of mingle uh, outside after this a little bit. We'd love to chat with you or assist you in any way that you uh, feel the need for as we're able. For now, as we transition to a time of communion, we're gonna take a moment to pray and then participate in the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we cry out to you now. Our, so, our souls long to know with certainty your goodness and your loyal love. We long to say with confidence that your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Keep us from assuming and presuming our salvation. Cause us to look to Christ, the eyes of our hearts, to behold him, to take hold of him, to trust him, to love him, to rest on him completely. Remove any doubts within, replace them with delight in you. And as we come to the Lord's table now, as we look upon the bread and the cup, emblems of Christ's dying love, remind us afresh of the depths of which he descended and the heights which his love soared and the length of which he traveled to make us secure and safe by your grace. All so that in living and in dying we may belong to you and you to us. Help us to be sure of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.